This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in Norse mythology, and we'll see Thor breaking up a couple by literally breaking a giant to pieces. And we'll learn all about why taking a jog through the dark forest in your underwear is a bad idea. For the creature this week, I hope you bring paprika the next time you go fishing. Or else you won't be fishing. You'll be swimming. This is Myths and Legends, episode 192, See How They Fly. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week we're back in the Norse sagas, with the saga of King Gotrik, a king who's only in it for like 30% of the story. This comes from the same collection as one of my personal favorite stories on this podcast, Arrowod, as well as the tale of Thorstein Mansionmite, a Viking who was bigger than doors. Taking place during the Viking Age, so roughly 800 to 1000 AD, this story is set in medieval Scandinavia, as the people were starting to venture out and come into contact with and conquer many places in Europe. We also intermingle with the mythology today, so as a brief recap, there are nine worlds in Norse myth. The Aesir, Odin, Thor, Heimdall, Frigg, and others rule from Asgard, which contains Valhalla, Odin's hall for the honored dead. The elves have their own realm, called Alfheim. Dark elves, or dwarves, have Svartalheim. H-E-L, hell, is the bad place. Niflheim is the ice realm. Muspelheim is the realm of the fire giants. Vanaheim is the realm of the Vanir, the rival group of gods who lost a war with the Aesir, and whose number includes Freya. Midgard is our world, of course, and Jotunheim is the realm of the giants, the clever, powerful group of people in a constant war with the Aesir. We will start this episode by seeing what happens when an elf, a giant, and an Aesir walk into a great hall. Thor wiped off his hammer. Well... This situation was all sorts of messed up, wasn't it? King Elf, or King Alf, the king of Alfheim, the world of the elves, one of the nine worlds of Norse myth, well, King Alf had a daughter named Alfhild. They weren't especially creative with their naming, but they were extremely angry. There was a supposed giant attack, and Alfhild was taken. The Jotun, the giant who took her, was smart enough to not go back to Jotunheim. Thor never needed a reason to bring the hammer down on the giants, and Starkad wouldn't give him any more incentive to bring chaos to his homeland. Starkad shrunk down to human size, and he and Alfhild went into hiding on Midgard, our world, the world of the humans. These were still the earlier times in world history, when a warlord with a dream in his heart and absolutely no compunction about wholesale slaughter, could carve out a kingdom of his very own. And Starkad did just that. Before long, he was the king of a sprawling northern kingdom, the greatest warrior of his age. Starkad became careless, though. When the glory of this new human king began echoing across the Nine Realms, Odin took a closer look at this king. When King Alf's daughter disappeared, the king of Alfheim had a meeting with the king of Asgard himself. And even though Odin didn't really care that much about Alfheim, he didn't like the reports of giants jumping between worlds, kidnapping princesses, and messing with the course of human history. An example had to be made. 
With a thunderclap, Thor landed in Scandinavia, surprised Starkad, and, with the swing of a hammer, ended his reign. As Thor wiped his weapon, he looked down at Alfhild. Oh. She, a secret elf queen on Midgard, was pregnant with the child of a giant of Jotunheim, and this child would be the heir to a human kingdom. So, a little complicated. And she was weeping for some reason. She said that she wouldn't be going with him, and she would never be returning home. Here, they were royalty. There, in Alfheim, she would be a pariah, and her son would be worse. Thor, deep in thought admiring his forehand strike that brought down Starkad, looked back at Alfhild. Oh, cool. Yeah, he didn't care. He took this job for the same reason he took any job. To kill giants. The giant was gone, and so was his interest in whatever inter-realm drama was going on here. Through the tears, Alfhild seemed to stand even taller, showing off her pregnant abdomen. Yeah, they both knew that was a lie. Thor narrowed his eyes, boarded his goat-drawn chariot, and disappeared, leaving Alfhild pregnant and queen of an entire kingdom on Midgard. Many years later, King Gotti, the king of Vesterjutland in modern-day Sweden, and of no relation to anyone in the previous story, was going hunting. So, naturally, he was sprinting through the woods in his underwear. Honestly, I have no idea how this happened. He started off hunting deer, and then got separated from his party. He didn't worry about it, and neither did his men. He was a Viking Age king. If anyone could handle themselves in the wilderness, it was him. That is, if he was clothed. You see, he speared a deer, but the deer reared, veered, and disappeared. Not one for tears, the austere mountaineer ditched his gear, persevered, and pursued without fear. If he didn't follow that, he almost, but not quite, killed a deer that took off with his spear. So, as everyone would do in this situation, he stripped down to his underwear because he was so hot, and he took off into the forest because he hated to watch a good spear go to waste. The good news was that he wouldn't have to watch a good spear go to waste because he would never see it again. He lost the deer, and himself, deep in the forest. The forests, in these times, were forbidding places. They were places people went to disappear, to hide, people who had done things that made them no longer welcome in society. King Gotti didn't care about that at all, though. He was almost naked, hungry, and the sun was going down. People concerned him the least. It was the wolves, witches, Draugr. He needed shelter. He thanked Odin when he heard a dog bark somewhere off in the distance. If there were dogs, there were people. And if there were people, there was shelter. He was going to be okay. It was dark when King Gotti stumbled through the stones and branches, his bare feet, legs, and arms cut up by the forest. And he found a slave cutting wood next to a dog. Gotti held up his hands to show that he didn't have a weapon. The slave narrowed his eyes, gripped his axe, and attacked. The dog, he attacked the dog. With one strike, he killed the good boy whose only crime was alerting a stranger to the location of the farm when he heard someone crashing through the forest. You know, 
what every dog would do in that situation. King Gotti was wide-eyed, but shook his head. He looked at the slave, malnourished from years in the forest, and simply walked past the man. He walked straight to the front door of the farmhouse, pushed it open, and walked in. The family inside, consisting of two parents, four men, and four women, were surprised when a nearly naked stranger walked in and took a seat among them, asking what was for dinner. King Gotti saw the dismay in the father's eyes, a man with the not-at-all-subtle name of Skinflint, when the king asked what was for dinner. The king, because of his life being a legendary Viking king and not starving in the forest, was almost twice the size of Skinflint and the rest of the man's family. Hi, friend, Skinflint said to the king, who was making himself comfortable on the man's furniture in his sweaty underwear. Skinflint turned to the slave and, through a forced smile, asked, Why did he let the man into this house? The slave pointed to Gotti and the man's superhero physique. Skinflint nodded. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, did he at least kill the dog so it wouldn't alert any more travelers? The slave nodded, of course. Skinflint was happy. He would take the slave with him tomorrow. King Gotti, who looked at the ragged family and didn't remotely put two and two together, ate everything that was offered to him, and then pretty much everything else. Skinflint watched with dismay as all of his food for winter went on the king's plate, and even though he had one harvest left, it wouldn't be enough. Not for everyone. He asked the king if he could get him anything else, but, you know, in a way that showed he did not mean that at all. Still oblivious, the king said that he wouldn't refuse some shoes or pants. He didn't have either. Skinflint said he knew that the man wasn't wearing any pants. They all knew. Skinflint took off his own shoes and handed them to the guest. Gaudy rose. All right, where could he sleep? Wake up, Gotti heard. He opened his eyes and found himself looking into the beautiful face of one of Skinflint's daughters, the youngest, Snatra. You, uh, want a little hospitality? The woman asked him. And if you're wondering, that means exactly what you think it means. She thought that the man who towered above her family looked quite nice, and they were quiet about things since everyone was sleeping about a max of 30 feet away in different rooms. And afterward, the king and Snatra laid there. The king turned to her. Hey, what was up with her family? They weren't too talkative, and in fact, they seemed to hate him. She nodded. Oh yeah, they absolutely hated him. In her lifetime, they had never entertained a visitor. And now they had one that drained the food stores before winter. The king cocked an eyebrow. Well, if they were hungry, they should just buy more food. That's what he did. Duh. But whatever. When he got back, he'd repay Skinflint for his begrudging hospitality. Snatra said that it wasn't quite that simple. King Gotti shrugged. It literally had always been that simple for him, but whatever. The next morning, the whole house was up. And there wasn't breakfast. Because all the breakfasts had been eaten by Gotti the night before. In fact, they were going to take a family walk. As it turned out, Gotti's way back went along the route that they were taking, and 
and so he followed them as they climbed the bluff. They all stopped at the top of a cliff, where Skinflint and his wife, Tatra, embraced all their children in turn. Then, the husband and wife held hands with the slave and jumped off the cliff. King Gotti rushed to the edge as their tattered clothes, fluttering in the wind, careened toward the rocks below. He turned back to the children, who were already making their way down the bluff. Uh, what was all that? Snot returned. Oh, yeah, uh, they went to Valhalla. Even the slave, too. He went hand-in-hand with his master, so Odin would take him to Valhalla, too. That was a big day for him. King Gotti was still catching up, so, wait, they killed themselves? Sinatra nodded. Yep, this place, it was called Family Cliff. No one could survive a jump from this height. It was their escape hatch of sorts, so they didn't need to suffer through injury or poverty. They just jump, and they get to go to Valhalla. Anyway, they were good here. The parents left all their stuff, and if the adult children were careful, they would survive the winter. Wow, I kind of feel like a jerk now, Gotti remarked. Snotra replied that she wouldn't say the king was wrong, but it was good. They were good. The king could go on. They would be fine. King Gotti said that if their meeting had certain consequences, wink, and that consequence was a boy, name him Gotrick and send him to Sweden. All right. Last night was nice. Stop by whenever, but if not, bye forever. Um, so the children, who, yes, were siblings and also married, and who were raised by the miserly outlaw, who instructed them to take their own life at the first sign of trouble, they maybe learned some unhealthy coping mechanisms. Knowing that a baby would upset the precious balance that the parents had left, the brothers and sisters agreed to wrap themselves in cloth and bolt it. If they didn't touch, they couldn't possibly get pregnant. Well, something happened. One night, Sinatra's older brother, and the only other one that wasn't married, so, you know, her future spouse, well, he... He grazed her cheek with his hand. He apologized to his sister, but was in shock a month later when she started showing. Of course, this was from her night with Gotti, and not from her brother touching her cheek. But the young man freaked out, declared that he was going to do right by his sister, his child, and his family. A mouth for a mouth. The next morning, he, too, took a trip over Family Cliff to Valhalla. Fjallmod, one of the brothers, took his inheritance wherever he went, carrying his gold in a backpack at all times. While out in the field herding sheep, he fell asleep and woke up to his gold dented and corroded. It had been fake. His parents had been scammed long ago. He was penniless. They would starve. He tossed the gold in the house and took off over Family Cliff himself with his wife, one of his sisters. When Snatra and the others looked at the gold, they just picked the black snails that had found their way into the bag, the bag of pristine, perfect gold, and they divided it among themselves. One brother spotted a sparrow in the garden and rushed to see where he had landed. He stood there trembling, 
when he saw the sparrow had picked exactly one grain from one ear of corn. He knew that this, this was the beginning of the end. He and his wife, once again his sister, took that flight off Family Cliff. At this point, Gotrick, Snotrangadi's son, had been born, and like his dad, he was fairly oblivious to the suffering of others. He saw one of the family's fine oxen outside, saw a spear by the door, and ah, he didn't know. Something just felt right. He killed the ox with a spear. It was just Snotra, Gotrick, Snotra's brother Gilling, and his wife left. Gilling declared that since he had lost one ox, he would never have any treasure come his way. He and his wife took off over the cliff and left Snatra and Gotrick completely alone. Wait, Snatra? Is that you? King Gotti stood up from his throne when a familiar face entered his hall. Guys, this is Snatra, the girl from the woods. The one I told you about. Hey, how's your weird family? Snatra pursed her lips. Yeah, there was a lot to catch up on there. But speaking of family, King Gotti, meet Gotrick. Gotti's jaw dropped. He knew it. He had a feeling. These were the old sagas. And either a royal couple spent 15 years together and had a singular child, or they spent one night together, and it was all but certain they would have a son, an heir to their kingdom. No middle ground whatsoever. And he looked Gotrick up and down, who, pushing 10, was looking like he was going to be taller than his father. He smiled. Speaking of heirs, we'll leave this little family reunited in Sweden for a bit, because, speaking of heirs, we're going to move north, to Norway, where we'll catch up with another family. But that will be right after this. Okay, so, we open this episode with the story of Thor, and the giant who ran away slash reportedly kidnapped an elf princess. Well, Alfhild raised her son, named Storvirk. But no matter how hard she tried, the apple apparently didn't fall far from the tree. Because when he came of age, he had a son, with a princess he also kidnapped. They named the boy after Storvik's dad, Starkad. When he was an infant, Starkad lost his dad, to all the people angry about him stealing Starkad's mom. The boy went to live with King Harold. I don't know what a good stat is for Viking Age dads being alive, but I can't imagine Starkad, now Owen II when it comes to living dads, after Harold was killed by Vikings, I can't imagine he was doing too well. Harold was killed by King Hrthjof, who took Starkad as a hostage, along with his foster brother, Vicar and he stuck Starkad on an island with a guy named Grani Horsehair, who, yes, had fantastic hair. Nine years passed until Starkad was 12, and Hrthjof was away at war. The pair of foster brothers escaped captivity with Mr. Main and Tail, saying, rightfully, that the beacons were lit, and they had to go to their king's aid. They aided him, all right, aided him on his way to H-E-L Hell, the realm of the dishonored dead, when they arrived at his home, and killed him themselves as vengeance for their foster dad. For the first time in his life, or the lives of his father or grandfather, Starkab was free. It was also very helpful that he didn't kidnap a princess. Don't kidnap princesses. 
For the next 15 years, so until StarCab was the ripe old age of 27, the Foster brothers fought their way across the Viking world, conquering land for the late great King Harold. Vicar, the Foster brother, even named his firstborn son Harold. Nothing could come between the two young men who had unwavering loyalty to one another and a dozen scars to prove it. Nothing, that is, except for grani horsehair. If you remember from like a minute ago for you and six chapters of Viking battle digressions for me, Grani Horsehair was Starcad's foster dad slash captor when Grani Horsehair worked for King Hurthjoff. Remember the guy who killed King Harold? Well, he basically raised Starcad, and he was kind to the boy. So he joined their crew when the kingdom changed management. He went raiding with the boys as they grew into men, and they plundered the known world. And he was there the day the weather got bad, and the group had to drop anchor off of a group of islands. They stopped for the night, then three nights, then ten. It became apparent to the Vikings that the wind and the rain weren't normal. Something had to be done. Vicar. The lots came up again and again. Odin demanded a human sacrifice to satiate the storm, and it had to be the king. Vicar was quiet, and his leading men said that they would think on this and convene a meeting in the morning. Midnight that night, Starcad was roused from sleep. It was Grani Horsehair, and the man had a hand over his foster son's mouth, signaling for Starcad not to speak, but to follow him. Starcad obeyed. Grani was silent as they rode through the night to another island. And amazingly, it seemed like the storm itself parted for them. The boat scraped on the pebbles, and the pair took off into the dark wood. The fire burned among the trees, and Starcad and Grani Horsehair stepped into the clearing. In said clearing sat 12 chairs and 11 people. Starcad gasped. It was them. Thor, Heimdall, Freya, Frigg, Eden, Bragi, Tyr, and others. The gods themselves. All except for one. No, Starcat allowed. Seriously? The whole time? Grani Horsehair grinned and flipped his thick, luscious hair back to reveal his newly patched eye. Even in the most incognito I've ever seen him in a story, Odin was still showing off. Grani, a.k.a. Odin, took his seat in the empty chair. As much as he wanted to sit and brag, and he really did, there was business to attend to. The business of Starcad. Me, Starcad said, only now realizing that he was surrounded by gods. What did I do? Oh no. Was it all the killing and raiding? Odin's eye widened. What? Buddy, no. We're the Norse pantheon. We are so cool with that. This has more to do with... Well, he would let Thor take it from here. Your grandma, Thor spat. Starcab was confused. Alfhild? He never really knew the woman. Oh my us, Thor, let it go, Freya called. You're just mad she chose a giant over you. You mean she was kidnapped by a giant? No one chooses a giant over all this. 
he said, gesturing to his body sculpted by mead, feasting, and occasional hammer swings. Thor, your wife is like, right there, Heimdall noted. Thor said what? He didn't care. He didn't do anything. She wouldn't let him. He meant she was kidnapped. Cries went up from the group that they all had better things to do, just decide Starkad's fate. Thor began, grinning. Seeing that Starkad's nasty half-giant, half-human, half-elf line would end with him. He would never have a child. All right, well, then he'll live three lifespans. The king of the gods, Odin, boomed. Thor turned. Oh, okay. Dad has a new favorite then. All right. He would live three lifetimes, but he would commit a foul deed in each one. Odin nodded. But he would have the best weapons and clothing. Thor rejoined that, sure, but he would never have any land or estates. Starkad wasn't listening, though. Not fully. He had heard the stories of his grandmother, a woman who died while he was in captivity. He always thought that she had been kidnapped by a giant. But she chose one? They left their realms for love and ran away to Midgard to be together, knowing what type of ire that would draw from the gods? As Stark had reconsidered his family history, and as he was proud of his name for the first time in his life, Thor and Odin continued. Odin said that Starkad would have great riches, but Thor decreed that he would never be satisfied. Odin said he would have victory and fame in every battle, but Thor said that he would be sorely wounded each time. He would have the art of poetry, so he could compose verses as fast as he could speak, but he would never remember his own poetry. The nobles would love him, but the common people would hate him. Finally, the meeting was over. Thor's ride, the goat-drawn chariot, was harassing Freya's house-cat-drawn chariot, and no one was super thrilled about this mandatory meeting, so Thor could feel better about being rejected for a giant. Stark had stood stunned as everyone cleared out. Everyone, that is, except for Grani Horsehair. Odin, you owe me, Grani demanded. Starkad didn't dare argue with the king of the gods. Grani looked back toward camp. All right, here's what you're going to do. The following day at camp, the men agreed on a half measure when it came to sacrificing their king, Vicar, so that the storms would cease. A half measure devised by Starkad. It was a fake sacrifice. They killed a calf and strung its entrails up over a tree, making a gallows. Starkad would approach and pretend to stab his king and friend with a reed. The oracles were surprised, yeah. From everything they could divine, this seemed to be cool with Odin. With entrails wrapped around his neck, faking the sacrifice, Vicar stuck his tongue out and pretended to die. So hilarious, that guy. And Starkad approached with the reed. He jabbed it at Vicar's stomach. And blood came out the man's mouth. The reed wasn't a reed, but a spear that had been hidden by Odin's magic. Vicar would have screamed out, but the entrails on which he hung became ropes, tightening around his neck. Now, I give you to Odin, Starkad whispered. I'm sorry, brother. He backed away from his king, the one who had saved him from captivity, and who he would have gladly died for, 
and the laughter at Vicar's joking died almost as quickly as Vicar when the men saw what Starcad had done. At the edge of the crowd, the gray-haired, one-eyed, one-time foster father of Starcad nodded, and the sky began to clear. was Thor's curse that Starkad would be hated by the common people, but it was Odin's edict that he kill Vicar that made it happen. Starkad barely kept Vicar's men at bay, and then he was forcibly exiled from the kingdom when everyone else found out about what he had done. Starkad, too, was lost. Lost without his king, without his brother. He had to do it. It was the will of the gods. Still, he composed beautiful, heart-rending poems about how killing Vicar was the most evil, most odious thing he had ever done, all because of who his grandmother had chosen to love, or chosen not to love. And if you can believe it, this is where we leave Starkad, sad and alone. I didn't know this, but he's kind of like the Forrest Gump of the Norse sagas, showing up at a lot of the big battles and historical events. He's mentioned in Beowulf, and he fights long Sigurd Ring, the father of Ragnar Lothbrok, and he wanders around, causing trouble. He's like a sad, slam-poetry Odin, who's haunted by his most heinous crime. We'll absolutely be back to tell his story, but his story is not Gotrick's. Yeah, Gotrick. Remember the guy with the less-than-resilient family? Well, he's now middle-aged, so 31 in Viking years, I'm not joking, I posted the source on that number. Gotrick's father and mother died a few years back, so King Gotti and Snatra, and King Gotrick himself had loved and lost. He had married a woman named Alfhild, no relation to the other one at the top of the episode, and they had a daughter named Helga. He was an old romantic, so when Alfhild died, he didn't want to do anything but be with her. He would go daily and sit atop her burial mound talking to her, and flying his hawk. That was where Gotrek met a very smelly man. Providing the loosest of connective tissues for our two stories today, there was a rich farmer that worked for Vicar, the king that Stark had killed. He was a good buddy of Vicar, fought in many of the king's battles, and his son was the absolute worst. So, wait, I should qualify that. In the Viking world, there was what would be the worst by modern-day standards. Raiding, stealing, slaughtering monks. That was actually the Viking best. Ref, the farmer's son, I don't even know what was going on with him. He was lazy, of course. He just laid around the kitchen, never bothering to rise or even wash the filth from his body or help anyone. But, like, he also ate twigs and tree bark. Not even leaves. The story makes it very clear that it was tree bark and wood. I don't get it. No one else did either. And he gained his reputation, but not in a good way, by destroying churches and slaughtering farmers, but because of his laziness and smell. After the death of Vicar, Renner, the farmer, was in kind of a dark place. One morning, he tripped. It was over Ref, his son, lounging in the kitchen eating bark, decades of filth caked on his body. Renner said that that was it. He was finished. 
he had enough of Ref lying around here, developing a reputation, but not in a good way for a Viking, by killing people. It was too much. He would give anything to see the backside of this kid. <laughs> Ref, the son, chuckled. <laughs> Phrasing. He took another bite of bark. To see you leave, Renner spat. I would do anything to see you leave. Ref perked up. Anything? Two days later, Ref was paddling across the sea. His father's favorite ox lashed the boat. See, his father had a prized ox that, when the whole having kid things didn't work out the way he hoped, he put a lot of time and effort into. He had the thing's horns gilded. He loved it. But he hated his son more. So he let the ox go, so that his son would go. Not knowing how to care for or transport an ox, Ref just lashed him to the side of the boat. And by some miracle, that thing didn't drown. He drove it up to Jarl Neri's house and offered it to the man. Now, Jarl Neri was cheap. And he didn't like getting gifts because he didn't like giving gifts. And Ref just told him as much. Eating a twig in the presence of the Earl, I think it's safe to say that Ref didn't care what anyone thought of him. The king narrowed his eyes. Cheap, huh? And to disprove that, he gave Ref a whetstone in exchange for the ox, with the suggestion to give it to King Godric, who liked to hang out at his wife's grave with the hawk. When the hawk wouldn't listen which happened pretty much daily, he would look for things to throw at the hawk. Well, that day he couldn't find a stone to make the hawk listen, so he held his nose and accepted the whetstone from Ref. That did its job, and the grateful king gave Ref a ring for having the right stone at the right time. We'll keep the focus briefly on Ref, whose main ability is inadvertently playing king's generosity against one another failing upwards to get better and better gifts. He took the ring to England, where King Allah was so grateful that he gave the man two very small dogs, which I'm reading were very rare. Ref sailed back east, where he ended up in the court of King Hrolf Kraki, a king whose story we covered in episodes 154a and b, who saw those very small dogs and learned that Gotrick had given the man rings for a whetstone, and King Ella had given him very small dogs for a ring. Not to be outdone, Ref traded his very small dogs to Hrothkraki for a fully laden and crude ship, and a helmet and coat of mail made out of red gold, which I'm pretty sure doesn't exist, but we should take it to mean it was extremely valuable and rare. For instance, Fafnir, the dragon's horde, contained some red gold, and people were literally killing one another for it. Anyway, Back to Gotrick to finish our story. He was out on his wife's burial mound one afternoon, throwing rocks at his bird. By the way, I'm not convinced that this bird is actually trained if we need to knock it from the sky each night with rocks. A messenger came running. They were under attack. It was Gift Ref, as he was now being called, because of his ability to accept gifts. He had an army now, and he had come to take Gotrick's kingdom by force. Jarl Neri, remember the cheap guy who provided the whetstone, arrived hours before the army. One of Gotrick's Jarls, or Earl, he offered his counsel. Don't fight Ref. 
take him into the kingdom, marry him into the royal family. His force was overwhelming. It was either that or die. So, Gotrick met Ref on the battlefield, as the man was eating from a bag of chips. And by chips, I mean wood chips. King Olaf, another king, stood next to him, wearing a full red gold helmet and chainmail set, and Gotrick offered to negotiate. Ref stepped forward and declared that he would only halt his invasion if he were offered Helga. That's Helga, right? Yeah. Gotrick's daughter in marriage. And... Uh... He looked to Jarl Neri, who rolled his eyes. Earldom, you want to be a Jarl, is uh, what you said to me earlier in menacing tones, Jarl Neri said, as he smiled nervously. This apparently went over Gotrick's head, who immediately agreed to all their terms. As soon as those words were said, Ref opened up another bag of chips, and Earl Neri turned to King Olaf. All right, they were good here. You guys can head out. And King Olaf did. He and all of his men sailed off, leaving Jarl Neri and now Jarl Ref alone. Wait, Gotrick said, as he now vastly outnumbered the two guys on the other side. This was a trick. Jarl Neri shrugged, and Gotrick shook his head. Well, he already swore to give Ref all those things. Well played, son. Ref didn't know what Gotrick was talking about. He was just doing what Jarl Neri said. That's all he ever did with this little trading game he had going on. Why was that? Because you said I was cheap, Jarl Neri screamed. Well, you got paid back for the ox. An earldom and a princess for an ox. Who's cheap now? You, uh, you showed him, King Gotrick said. He threw his arm around the young man, saying that his father had been a great Viking under King Vicar. He was honored to bring Ref into his family. Ref shrugged and tossed the empty wood chip bag to the ground. Okay, he replied. Uh, he was sleepy now? Where was the kitchen? He wanted to take a nap. Both the Earl and the King, watching the unwashed 20-something saunter off for a nap on the kitchen floor, started to wonder if putting this man in charge of actual human lives was a good idea. And this, after three protagonists, is the end of our story. Lucky for the kingdom, Ref didn't actually live long enough to take power. It turns out eating wood and bark and never showering is very bad for you. Who knew? Jarl Neri went next, leaving just King Gotrick, who, threats to his realm pacified, returned to his wife, Alfield, and his questionable falconry skills. As I said at the top of the episode, the saga of King Gotrick comes from the same collection as Arrow Odd and Thorstein Mansionmite. And while the story is not nearly as tight as either of those, I still had to do it for the judgment of the gods, yet another incognito Odin, Ref and his eating habits, and that bizarre instance of people throwing themselves off a cliff. I have to say, that was probably not a thing. It's an ancient world practice of debated historical authenticity in Scandinavia, where elderly people, or people who could no longer help support the household, 
would throw themselves off a cliff. I don't want to spoil the movie, but in my research, I found that it figured into a popular horror film from 2019. The practice, and the location where it takes place, is called Atastoup, which means family cliff or kin precipice. And modern understandings of it, I've read, were actually inspired by today's story. An obviously humorous take on this gruesome thing from Swedish folklore. I guess it's now generally accepted that this practice probably didn't actually take place, but we still have the story of, quote, the fools from the valley, as this particular chapter is known. I know I said it last week, but next week we'll finally be diving into the Grimm stories. And two weeks from today, we'll be back in the story of the Monkey King as he makes his journey west. If you'd like to support the show, there are a couple different options. You can get a membership, get ad-free shows and 50-plus bonus episodes right now, or you can check out the store with handmade items at mythpodcast.com slash store, or both. But really, just thank you for listening and telling people about it. You all are awesome. The creature this week is the Swamp Auger, a fearsome critter from North America. So you're out boating, and you hear something scraping against the bottom. Not an incredibly rare phenomenon, but then you see something. A corkscrew-like appendage coming up through the bottom of the boat. It's like maybe six inches in diameter. It's an auger, but it's not an auger. It's a nose. Through the wood shavings, you see the sharp nose start to sniff the air as the water begins to seep in around the edges. This thing is making holes in your boat. What will you do? Well, lucky for you, you brought cayenne pepper. You see, the swamp auger is a creature that lives in freshwater lakes. Think of it like a freshwater sawfish with an auger instead of a saw. It will keep drilling holes in boats unless you stop it. And you, being the folklore savvy fisher that you are, brought your cayenne pepper. You sprinkle a bit on the swamp auger's nose and the thing will start to sneeze. Sprinkle some more and it'll keep sneezing. As it sneezes, you should really make for sure. If you thought the cayenne pepper was to get rid of the swamp auger, you'd be wrong. It's actually the opposite. The creature is super into sneezing in a kind of a weird way and actually makes holes in boats so that people fishing will sprinkle pepper onto its nose and cause it to sneeze. Or if they forgot pepper and want to make things even weirder, you can sit there and just tickle that nose with one hand. I guess avoiding those sneezes while you frantically make for sure with the other, knowing that you'll make it. That creature's not going anywhere because he's way too into your tickles. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Magoosh for sponsoring us this week. Magoosh is an online test prep that provides students with the flexibility to study from home, with tons of practice questions, study schedules, video lessons, and free apps. Plans are affordable, and Magoosh offers a score improvement guarantee. If you don't improve, you'll get your money back. Visit magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H, and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 20% off discount. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.